Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September 27, 2018, and this is episode 2300 of the Survival Podcast. And it's an interview show because, well, we were supposed to do this interview yesterday, and the powers that be, meaning the forces of uh, electricity and Mother Earth, uh, changed that. So power went out yesterday, and I thought it was kind of ironic that the power went out here the day after I talked about the basics of being prepared. So I backed old Red up the uh, pickup truck with the Stephen Harris battery bank, and we checked with the power company. They said, well, your power will be out for about two hours. I said, oh, okay, no big deal, and hooked up the truck, powered up the, the cable modem and the router and the computer and a couple lights and went back to work and got everything ready to do the show. And uh, then an update came from the power company. said, well, it's going to be like 3.30 before power comes out. All right, fine, go ahead and get the generator and roll it out of the garage and plug it in and go back to work and I'll get Sean Mills on and we'll, we'll, we'll go from there, no problem. Well, I guess somewhere along the way, you know, those, uh, those cable TV systems that the cable modem and everything else comes in on, um, they actually use electricity. They use direct current electricity through the amplifiers that keep power up. And they do have some backup power, but they tie into the grid. And I guess whatever backup power Comcast Spectrum, whatever the hell they call themselves now had, well, they ran out, so the Internet went down. So I, I plotted along a little bit with my laptop and tethered it to my iPhone. And it works okay, but it would not re- It was not reliable enough to conduct a Skype interview. So I contacted our guest, actually Dorothy contacted our guest, Sean Mills, who's the latest member of the Expert Council specializing off-grid stuff. Um, and said, hey, you know, we're sorry we can't do this today. He said, I'll look at my schedule, see if I reschedule. Turned out he could reschedule for today. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to bring Sean on. We're going to talk about solar power today, kind of ironic, and when it makes sense and when it doesn't make sense. You know, the, the right applications for the right use of solar technology today, and maybe a little bit about how that will change over time. Now, before I bring Sean on after far too long of a wait, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is ReadyMadeResources.com, the company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click and buy on their website. And they've got everything for your prepping needs, from the practical to the tactical, to guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it all at ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. You know... Knives are one of those things, it's almost like a mystical art to make a knife. It really is, but it doesn't have to be that complicated. There are kits that you can get and pick out your handle material and bolsters and stuff like that. You can make your own knives pretty easily from a kit form. Uh, Or you can get more advanced over time. And Knife Kits has all the stuff you need to be able to do just that, including instructionals if you're not sure where to get started. They have books and DVDs and other things. They have a great staff that will take your calls and answer your questions. They also have a lot of great stuff for, like, making Kydex kits and uh, leather working and other stuff like that. You'll find it all at knifekits.com. And ready-made resources at knifekits.com both do discounts for members of the MSB. Just log into the benefits section of your MSB to learn more about that before ordering for either uh, through either one of them. And yet another quick reminder, Saturday morning is coming up. I mean, today's Thursday, tomorrow's Friday, Saturday morning, 8 a.m., 
Uh, tickets for TSP 18 Fall Workshop here at Nine Mile Farm go on sale. If you've always thought, I really want to go to one of Jack's workshops, I really want to come to this one because they're all going to be great forever. They always have been great. We always try to do a little bit better, but this one's going to be special. This is 10 years of TSP. We're going to be doing some stuff here that will probably never happen again. And uh, I'm telling you, I know that the guy selling you tickets to his own event is always going to say stuff like this, but it is life-changing. And I'll tell you how you know it's life-changing. People spend 500 bucks to come here, and I feel like we, we put it back into them in food and booze alone. <laughs> and education, I think, is priceless. But it's still significant. I mean, you think about it. Someone comes here, they're giving up 500 bucks of their cash, but it's not just that. They're, they're usually getting here Wednesday, leaving here Sunday. So you're, you're looking at, what, five days uh, that they're giving up, plus travel time, plus travel expenses, often taking some days off of work, and people have jobs taking valuable vacation days to be able to come. And do you know that I would say that in any given event, 70 to 80% of the people that are here have been here before. They've come back. And I would tell you that probably 25 to 35% of the people have been to more than six. Now, really think about that. How many things are there like this that people have that kind of loyalty and go back to? And it ain't about me, folks. And, and even though the food's really good, it ain't just for the food. It is because of the experience. So if you've been thinking about coming Saturday, you need to get up early, set your alarm, log into your MSB account, Get your reservation before they're gone because it's going to sell out really quickly this year. Maybe not because I am going to probably sell about 10 more than we usually sell just because I kind of feel obligated to, to make that work. Um, but in the end, guys, this is going to be one of the, the biggest, baddest celebrations of all time with some of the coolest people you will ever meet. TSP 18 here at Nine Mile Farm. Get up, uh, get registered, and come on out. I think you'll really enjoy it. Again, for those of you that are trying to figure out logistically where would you fly into, Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport would be the place to fly into. And while I don't live in Azle, Texas, it's near Azle, Texas is where I live. You get full, full travel details and everything else when you sign up. All right, <clears throat> with that, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at the day in history, except since we missed yesterday's show, I want to do yesterday's day in history for you. We're going to go back to 1945, September the 26th. Now, you might be thinking, September 1945 has got to have something to do with World War II. It does in a roundabout way. How about this? <clears throat> the first American soldier killed in Vietnam. Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Dewey is a U.S. Army officer with the Office of Strategic Services in Vietnam. He shot and killed in Saigon. Dewey was the head of a seven-man team sent to Vietnam to search for missing American pilots and to gather information on the situation in the country after the surrender of the Japanese. Um, according to the provisions of the Potsdam Convention, the British were assigned the responsibility of disarming Japanese soldiers south of the 16th parallel. However, with the surrender of the Japanese, Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Minh declared themselves the rightful government of Vietnam. This angered the French colonial officials and the remaining French soldiers who had been disarmed and imprisoned by the Japanese. And you can read the rest if you want to. I'll put a link in the show notes for you. But I really don't want to get into the particulars of what was going on at the time. There's a huge history lesson in there all the way up until the U.S. officially gets militarily involved in Vietnam. But this is the truth. We screwed around and our allies screwed around with a country that had a way that it wanted to run itself. 
when it finally got the ability to run itself that way in the 1970s when the U.S. finally left Vietnam, the way that it tried to run itself collapsed in about 15 years. And today the United States and Vietnam have very good relations with each other. All we had to do at this point was say that'll be the last one and walk away. And we didn't. And because of that, there's a wall in Washington, D.C. I saw it the first time in my life when I was in junior high school. I was in eighth grade. I was going to school in Jacksonville, Florida. Got on an Amtrak train as part of a week-long school trip, and we went to Washington, D.C. I was pretty young, dumb like young kids are, and it took a lot to make an impression on me. We went to places like Mount Vernon. Uh, we went to uh, a lot of other cool places. The only one that really hit me hard and made me actually stop for a minute, stop being a kid and start thinking about life a little bit more like a man was that wall and all of those names. And standing there that young and running my hand across that wall and feeling those names etched in that wall and realizing that most of those men were probably told that they would be heroes. And while we'll say they're heroes, the majority of them, you don't know their name, you'll never know their name, and what they got was their name etched on a wall. And there's a lot of other men died in a lot of other places that don't even have that. And think a little bit harder before we rah-rah our way to war. I didn't really understand it fully, but it made an impression on me. Today I think back to that young man, and I wish I could have stood there over his shoulder and explained to him what was really going on. On that note, let's go ahead and talk about something a little less somber. Let's talk about solar energy with our guest, Sean Mills. Sean became intrigued with self-sufficiency around the 2008 financial crisis. Working in and around the power generation for 18 years led him to increase his knowledge in renewable energy production. In 2012, he purchased an off-grid home, and he designed and installed his own off-grid solar photovoltaic system. Sean, his wife, and two daughters have lived off-grid since 2012 in Middle Tennessee, where they use solar photovoltaics, solar thermal, rainwater catchment, and other appropriate technologies to live a more self-sufficient and positive cash flow lifestyle. In 2017, he started a consulting business, Hack My Solar, to help others identify and implement ways to increase their personal energy independence. He joins us today to discuss when solar power makes sense and equally, equally when it does not. With that, hey, Sean, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks for having me today. Glad to have you finally, right? Man, we were supposed to have you yesterday, but... Uh... Some doorknob uh, blew up a transformer station or something over here. I, I don't know exactly what happened because the weather wasn't that bad. We had to back up power going. We were going to get you on anyway. And then uh, apparently the cable company's not good at backup power. You know, So maybe it's good we have you on to talk about uh, solar power today, right? Yeah, really. It's like the uh, universe has a sense of irony. <laughs> I think it does, man. So, look, I mean, you've been on the air a few times uh, lately because we've had it to the expert council, and I appreciate you stepping up and doing that. Um, but a lot of people probably have no idea who the heck this Sean Mills cat is. People have probably met you here at workshops, know who you are. They know you can hustle a game of pool, but... Give us the kind of you know. Give us the uh, the the elevator intro to who is Sean Mills, man. What what led you to where you are in life today? Well, you know, um, in high school, I'm sitting there thinking I'm going to go to college, and uh, I was uh, beyond poor, so that I really had no way uh, to pay for it. Even even with scholarships, I couldn't have paid to live while I went to college. So 
I had this great idea to go get in the construction industry and make some money for a year. And then I'd take all that money that I saved up and go to college. Well, you know, when you're 18 years old and you're making a lot of money, saving it isn't uh, a very high priority. So <laughs> the good news is, is I fell into an industry that I really enjoyed, which was industrial construction. And that's led me over the past 18 years of working in and around power generation. So um, around the, the Great Recession, I started looking around thinking I should get my stuff in order uh, because, you know, we weren't prepared at all. And uh, for anything, really, you know, we had probably less than three days worth of food in the house like everyone else. And um, and so I looked at it and I said, well, let's let's do some things to increase our self-sufficiency. Um, and within four years, we were buying and, and moving to an off-grid property. Uh, we designed and installed our own uh, system to, to run our property. And then within five years, I had so many people asking me to help them out do the same thing or something similar. I said, you know, maybe I should start a company and uh, charge for my time. Very cool, man. So what made you decide personally to go off the grid? Was it just because you watched Doomsday Bunkers and <laughs> thought the end of the world was coming and you went and got yourself a bunker and a tinfoil hat, or do you have other reasons behind it? You know, initially when uh, when I started looking to buy a house, um, the idea was that we would take a part of our uh, energy off-grid, you know. So we had the process, we had thought through a little bit what we wanted to eventually do. We wanted a place where we could eventually go off-grid, at least partially. You know, we didn't really, we weren't planning on diving straight in feet first. And what happened is, is we found a property. We loved the area. We loved the house. We loved the land that came with it. Uh, the problem was, is that it wasn't connected to the grid. It was being run off of a generator. And we looked at it and said, okay, well, we could do this, you know. And when we found out what the asking price was compared to similar properties that were grid tied, it was like, oh, wait a minute. You mean I can have a mortgage payment that's less than my truck payment? Well, that <laughs> sounds interesting. Um, so when we first bought the place, we actually reached out to the local utility and said, hey, you know, right now we're running off of a generator. We're just kind of getting our feet under us. Could you come out and look and tell us what it would cost to put in, you know, a, a meter? And the house is wired to code, but uh, apparently the people that built it didn't find out how much it would cost to run power to the house until after they built it, at which point they had run out of money. Hmm. And so we got two, two options. One was above ground on poles. Uh, that was going to cost us right around $40,000. And we were going to have to cut a 40-foot right away through seven other people's property. And the other option was to bury it in a Schedule 40 pipe. That was going to cost us 18000 plus we had to dig the ditch and provide the pipe. And so I said, okay, well, I've been doing all this research on, on solar. Let's see how much solar we would, we would really need to just do everything off of solar. And it turns out for about an $8,000 investment, we were able to um, – you know, get our needs taken care of and essentially get grid parity on day one. And that's where you defeated the Harris, right? <laughs> when he, yeah. Uh, he said, so you can never, you know, your, your pay payback on solar is forever. And you're like, no, your payback can be on day one. If you can get the property for less, uh, because Absolutely. it doesn't have power. And then you put solar in and then you, you know, and then if the cost of that is less than the property with grid, well, you won. You're done. Right. 
Yeah, we won a couple times with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, your power didn't go off yesterday, right? Uh, Nope. You know, on another note, how realistic is it for someone to install their own solar system, and what does the financial (laughs) payback look like? Well, you know, with all of those broad questions, Jack, you know as well as I do that it, it depends. Yeah. So, you know, the the... The, it depends on what the goal is. So are we talking about I want to buy a remote property and live there full time and do whatever I want and be self-sufficient from an energy standpoint? In that situation, it's very easy. Uh, it's very easy to, to learn. There's tons of resources online. I mean, I learned how to do everything that I did for my system on online. And the payback for that in that scenario is pretty much immediate. Now, if we're saying I've got a bug out location that I go out and hunt uh, and I spend, you know, on average 30 days a year there, uh, well, now that the, the ease of doing it is about the same. But the financial payback isn't necessarily there, because if someone came to me and said, hey, here's what I want to do. I'm like, well, take a generator generator out there. And when you go out there to go hunting, take some gas with you or or get a propane generator, and run it off of a barbecue tank. Right. That's probably the more cost effective way to do that. Now, if you're a prepper and you say, well, yeah, but I also want this thing to be a bug out location on top of being a hunting cabin, then I might say, all right, throw a couple panels up, a couple battery bank, uh, you know, a couple batteries in a bank, set an inverter up and also take your generator. Right. So now you've got a little bit of power to charge devices, run a radio, lighting, things like that. If you needed a bug out there. Uh, but, you know, your big stuff, you could still run off of a generator. Now, when you switch over to talk about, okay, I'm on the grid right now and I, I you know, I'm interested in, in taking either something going off the grid or doing a grid tied system. Well, once you're on the grid, you got to play by the grid's rules. So the ability to do it yourself almost goes away. It doesn't quite go away. And I'll get into that a little bit more later, but it almost goes away because of all the permitting things that you have to, to work through. You know, you've got to work through state laws. You've got to work through the local utility. And typically there's a wholesaler behind that utility who has their roles as well. And so at, when you get into that, the financial payback starts to get a little bit longer. Um, but it, that's not to say that it's not there. There's it just if you, hold you for a second there. Good. That also depends on when you get into that scenario. Well, are you setting up solar and tying it into the grid? Or are you setting up solar as a secondary source of power? Right. So let's say I've got a garage that isn't hooked to my meter, right? I don't have a meter on my garage, and I want to set that up as a workshop. Well, I could do a system for the workshop, right? I don't have to touch the grid. It's just next to the grid. And, hey, by the way, when the power goes out, I could just run an extension cord from my workshop into the house so my meat doesn't unfreeze. Got you. Um were your wife and kids on board when you came up with this genius plan to go live in the middle <laughs> of the woods and, and, and live off of battery and, and panel power? Well, my kids at the time were five and seven, so they pretty much do whatever we tell them. They didn't really have a choice. Um, Don't get used my, to that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. They're they're 11 and 13 now. So. Oh, that's over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, my wife, she was definitely on board uh, with the idea, right? And so being on board with the idea and being on board with the reality sometimes are two different things. And I had the genius idea to move off-grid 
during the hottest day in the history of Middle Tennessee. So the day we moved in Nashville, it was 109 degrees. So that's the hottest it's ever been. At 11 o'clock at night, I'm unloading the U-Haul. It's still like 92 degrees outside and a billion percent humidity feels like. So what we've learned is when you live off-grid all the time and you your body has the ability to acclimate as the temperature is getting hotter from the winter through into the summer, it's a lot easier to deal with those hot days than going from central air conditioning to hottest day in the history of Middle Tennessee. Um, so I would say, you know, when we first made the move, my wife was like, oh, holy crap, what did we get into? <laughs> what, what have you gotten us into now? And uh, now it's definitely, it's swung 180 degrees. It's, it's everyone really enjoys the lifestyle that we have. We go down to Georgia and visit family and we're constantly walking through and turning people's lights off. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Or no one even thinks about turning a light off when they leave a room and we walk by and it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. So um, it, it's definitely, it's a lifestyle and it requires some lifestyle design, but we don't have to go without, you know, we do the things that we want to do. And, and that goes a long way to not having a spouse and kids that are looking at you like, uh, we're still living off grid. What's going on here? Like, let's get back to reality. Gotcha. Um, what sacrifices then have you made to, to live off grid? Because I think there is kind of this romantic notion that like, you know, we'll never have a bill again and everything will be wonderful and we'll have all the comforts at home, including my 220 watt, uh, you know, uh, uh, whirlpool plugged into my, my, <laughs> my lightsaber, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the reality is the number one sacrifice I alluded to it earlier is central air conditioning. Uh, you don't have central AC when you live off grid unless you're just independently wealthy and, you know, you've got a 20 kilowatt system sitting out in, in a field. Um, you, that being said, we still have window units. You know, we've got a big one in the living room. We've got one in our bedroom. We've got one in the kids' bedroom. And w during the day when we have excess power and it's also really hot, well, we'll run those air conditioners to keep it from getting too hot, right? So that along with a 3,500 cubic foot per minute whole house fan that we can run in the evenings to pull that lower air and get that, you know, it's it's like getting the natural thermal siphon happening, but you're just supercharging it with the with a big old fan. Um, that helps. But, I, you know, the reality is, is that sometimes in the middle of summer, my bedroom is 79, 80 degrees when I go to bed. Now, With a fan on me throughout the whole night, it's not a problem. If I lived in uh, somewhere with central AC and then went straight out and, and tried to do that, I would be I would definitely be uncomfortable. So that's the biggest sacrifice. There are some lifestyle lifestyle design things. So for instance, uh, we have a dishwasher, right? And a lot of people are surprised. Wait a minute, you live off grid, you're solar power, you have a dishwasher? Yeah, we sure do. And but we don't run that at night after dinner. Because when the sun goes down until it comes back up the next day, we're doing everything possible to conserve energy. So we may scrape the plates, rinse them off, and stick them in the dishwasher, but we're not hitting start until, you know, maybe 10 o'clock the next morning. You know, and is that a sacrifice? No, but it is a difference in lifestyle design. Sure. I can tell you that being a one-income household is, is definitely has definitely made it a lot easier to, to live the way that we do. 
you know, my wife is home during the day. She takes care of stuff. You know, she can do laundry at one in the afternoon, whereas a lot of wives might be at work at one in the afternoon. So could we do this as easy as we do if we were both out working during the day? Absolutely not. And I have no illusions to that effect that, you know, a single person um, or, or a two income household with younger kids who can't, you know, do some of that stuff, maybe when they get home from school, um, would have a harder time doing it the way that we do it. Yeah. And I, I think though, the other side of that would be like, so you don't have the same monetary needs if you, you know, that where you need your spouse to work. So you have a two right. income household because you yeah, that's the, absolutely. That yep. And, uh, so that, that's, you know, uh, a big difference for a lot of people. I guess the other thing is if you had a two income household, if you dumped one annual salary from one spouse into more power for a year, you could compensate for that too. So Absolutely right. Absolutely it's, right. It's what I tell my wife all the time. You can have anything you want. You just can't have everything you want. Right. 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 You just pick and choose. Right. Yep. Um, so, When does an on-grid solar uh, system make sense? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, it, it makes sense right now in California because they're mandating it, right? Sure. Um, but out, outside of California, Stan, you know, there are areas in the country where the price of electricity and the ability to have access to the components at a reasonable price does make sense. All right. So, I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm working with some people in Mur Murfreesboro, Tennessee right now, and they have a workshop that they want to take off-grid. And their plan is once their off-grid system is up and running and everything is two-code and, and everything's been inspected, they will switch their off-grid inverter out for an on-grid inverter, have it inspected by TVA, and be able to plug into the grid. Well, we've talked to TVA, and... That's a possibility. So that gets – so let me explain what the math looks like there, all right? Uh, we're talking about putting in about an 8,700-watt system there, buying one pallet of 325-watt panels at 46 cents per watt, okay? Now, they're going to have to drive about three hours one way, so six-hour round trip to pick these up, but the cost of gas for those six hours is way less than the cost of shipping. So when we take the cost of their panels, the inverter, um, some optimizers so that they don't have a lot of shading losses, um, the wiring, the mounting components, they're right around $10,000 for their whole system. Okay. Now that system is going to be capable of generating 13,000 kilowatt hours of electricity per year. Well, they, right now they're paying about 11 cents per kilowatt hour. So that's in the neighborhood of $1,430 per year in, in electricity that they won't have to buy from the grid. Okay. That makes that whole system before we take out the 30%, um, rebate, um, less than five years, uh, financial return. Now, once they, once they apply for and get approved for TVA's Uh, program where they actually will pay them nine cents per kilowatt hour for what they produce. Now that system takes less than three years to pay back. So we're talking about components that individually, you know, not all the components last forever, but individually have between a 15 and a 30 year shelf life and they pay for themselves in three years. 
So even if we have to replace that inverter after 15 years, we're still so far ahead at 15 years, it's not even funny. Because the and, and those the math changes depend on where you are. So let's talk about where you are, Jack. Yep. What do you pay, about six, seven cents per kilowatt hour? Oh, no, rates have gone up here. We're up to more around the 10, 10 cents a kilowatt hour now. Oh, wow, okay, that's yep. interesting. Yep. Um, I, I wonder if that ha- – so, so Texas has a very interesting – process. They've got a reverse bid uh, or re- reverse auction system going. And so the way that Texas works, and, and they can kind of design their own system because they have their own grid, but ERCOT takes bids and then they stack those bids up from cheapest to most expensive, right? And so let's say that, that you know, on a given day, 20% uh, of the, the bottom 20% of that stack is solar and wind power and biomass because there's a couple of biomass plants in Texas. Well, the marginal cost of electricity for those plants is very, very low. You know, um, once the once those uh, wind turbines are built and in place, yeah, we want to get a return on our initial capital investment, but it doesn't cost me anything more. You know, the wind doesn't cost me anything. So we've got you know a certain percentage of that stack made up with those renewables. And then the next portion of that stack is going to be made up with natural gas. Natural gas is so cheap in Texas right now that coal can't even touch it. Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, I, was, I just looked this up yesterday. So um, at about $3.50 per million BTU of natural gas, uh, natural gas is cheaper than coal. That's the, that's the break even is about three fifty. Okay. Yesterday it was $3.04. And that's the Henry Hub, which is the benchmark for natural gas in Texas. In the Waha Hub, which is over in the Permian Basin, it's eighty-two cents. The problem is, is they've got they're getting all this uh, associative gas out of the Permian because they're drilling for the oil, and they're only allowed to flare it for forty-five days. So they're allowed to flare it while they're drilling, and then they're allowed to fill, uh, flare it for forty-five days once they go into production. So they've got all this gas. And nowhere to put it. None of those pipelines running from there down to the Gulf are done yet. No. The one going down to Mexico, the pipeline to Mexico is built, but all the connections in Mexico aren't done yet. So, you know, for, for all practical intents and purposes, in in Texas, you can build natural gas for a third of the cost of, of coal. But the way that bid stack works up is, okay, all the natural gas guys bid in, the nuclear guys bid in, the, the coal plants bid in, and... However much power is needed in the whole interconnection, they go up to that point, and everyone that's bid was above that, well, they don't get to sell their power. And so I think there was a day last year where uh, wind was 45% of um, of the annual, or not the annual, but on a day, it was 45% of the bid stack. So nearly half of all of the electricity over there was being generated by wind, which again has a marginal marginal next megawatt hour production cost of next to zero, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to hear that your rates have gone up. Uh, well, so I'll tell much. you what it is, Sean. When you uh, when you move to a house in Texas, they'll all cut their wrists to get you as a customer. Mm-hmm. When your first contract expires, they don't work so hard for your business. Ah, uh, now you're locked in. You're locked in. Well, you know you can you can switch, but um, if you start out with the cheapest, because we have lots of power companies here we can choose from, uh, generally the, the the people that you would switch to know kind of where 
you know, like where they're going to put you next, and they right. can all hold the line right there. So you mm -hmm. can come in at like seven and a half, eight cents, but you know, a couple of years later, you're going to be looking at you know nine, nine or something like that, closer to ten. Right. So right. it's 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 you know it's competition, but it's only it only goes so far. Well, you know, the, and the interesting thing about the, the those on grid systems, right, is on average, um, your power costs, your electricity rates are going to go up three to four percent per year, right? Yep. So you look at it, and say, okay, well, hold on, if if I'm going to make the investment right now, I'm essentially going to say I'm going to prepay the next five to six years of my electrical bill, but then from six out to thirty. I'm so far ahead of the game, it's not even funny. Now, the, the reality is is that there, there is a cost of money, right? So I have to determine, am I willing to take that large capital investment and plug it into the, to my, my system right now, which that was a decision that we had to make. It was made a lot easier when we found out how much it was going to cost to run electricity up to the house. But, you know, someone that's already on the grid, they may look at it and say, okay, well, this is a big capital investment. But if we're going to be here, if we're going to be here for the long term, it, maybe it makes a lot of sense. The other thing is, if it's a grid-tied system, that those panels become part of the appraised value of the house. But most states, not all, most states cap the portion of that value that can actually be taxed. So, you know, in Tennessee, for example, I think it's 30%. So let's say my panels add $30,000 worth of value to the, my appraised costs. Well, they can only tax $9,000 of that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Until the next guy buys it. Then whatever right. he pays is whatever he pays. Yeah. Correct. That's a, that's a burn a lot of people learn hard in life. I, I learned that very young. You know, you buy a house, you look at the tax, and I go, oh, that's cheap. And then immediately, well, there's a new appraised value. Well, what is yeah. it? What you pay? Oh. Yep. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I see. I really can't argue with that one now, can I? Uh, yeah. And you look at it and you say, okay, well, that guy's taxes are going to go up, but he didn't have to drop the capital in to actually put the system in, right? He didn't, that's true. He, his, his payback is... You know, while it's it's not going to be a one to one because the the value, the depreciated value of that uh, improvement to the house is probably you know depending on how old the system is, he may not get it all back, but he's probably going to get it's probably going to be a good deal for him to buy that house that already has the panels on. Yeah, absolutely, because it's there, and it, it, because you're rolling it into a mortgage, then right, which is a, a thing you don't generally get to do. Yeah. You don't generally just get the phone up your bank and go, I'd like to put another nine grand on my mortgage, please. <laughs> right. You know, for what? Uh, solar panels. So we'll do a home equity loan, but that's a different set of terms, a different interest rate. You know, when you're talking three, four percent money over 30 years, 10 grand comes out to about $10 a month. Right. Right. So, I mean, when you look at it that way, the guy buying the house that's already got it installed, he's doing better. Um, Absolutely. Except he's also, you know, going to pay the. Uh, department of making a sad tax on it, though, on the other side. So that's another thing altogether. Um, what kind of evaluation do you think you should complete to understand how you're using power and how much you're using before you decide, personally, I should take this plunge? Well, you know, th that's another thing we talked to a lot of people about. And, 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 you know, I know you've mentioned it before. I think it's been an item of the day. But the kilowatt meter is your friend. You know, you get that thing, find out what you're using, what, it, where's the vampire load, you know? Um, one of our, you know, major rules that we have for this type of thing is we don't turn electricity into heat, you know? That's the least effective way that we can use electricity. So we're not using electricity to heat water. 
We're not using electricity to heat space. We're not using electricity to heat food. You know, we don't have a, micro, a microwave. Uh, I would say a um, a slow cooker would probably be a, a good compromise if you, you know, uh, in terms of cooking, um, you know, because you could plug it in mid-morning, right? Mm-hmm. And because it's going to draw a lower draw over a longer period of time, you know, as the sun comes up and goes down, you're generating electricity from your panels. You know, that's something that I would make an exception for. But, you know, we're not using electric baseboard heaters. We're not using those little guys that you plug in and stick under your desk, you know, to keep your feet warm. Um, we're, we're definitely not turning electricity into heat. I'm a big fan of heating with wood. And if you can't heat with wood, you know, heat with propane or natural gas. Uh, try to stay away. You know, simple, uh, similar to the central air system, um, you're, you're not... If you're going to do this, you got to be able to understand we're going to heat this or going to cool the spaces that we're in and not the whole house. We're not going to cool a 2000 square foot house so that our, you know, 180 square foot bedroom is comfortable. And and that's got to be a, a thing that you you have to be willing to look at going into it or you have to be willing to say, well, no, we're going to keep it in. We're just going to have a, a solar array that's twice the size that uh, that, you know, we we have a budget for. Sure, um, sure. I mean, on the, on the air conditioning, you mentioned window units, and I think with, like, a small cabin or something, that makes sense. But do the – I think Makita makes them, the, the like, high-efficiency space air conditioning units, do they really make a lot of sense? Maybe especially for somebody with a, uh, a higher-end uh, home that doesn't really want, you know, this big honking window box thing sticking out, taking up the you're window. Thi- you're talking about, like, the mini-split systems? I think so. It looks like – Yeah, so you've got a compressor like just like – in a um, hotel, but they're even actually more compact than that. Yes, yeah. So that's a mini split system. I've looked. I've actually looked into those for our house, and um, yes, those would absolutely work. That you what you've got to do is you got to make sure you're dialing the BTUs that that system is uh, rated for to the room size. So let's say, for example, uh, if I were to do one at our house, I would have four zones, uh, and what it is is you've got a a compressor that sits outside, it looks just like everyone else's air conditioning unit. But in, but whereas your typical air, air conditioning unit is going to cool the air and then blow it through ductwork to get it to different areas of the house, what this system does is it takes that cold refrigerant through a line to the actual air handling unit, and you can have multiple air handling units in your house. Wow. It cools the air right there at the unit, and so you don't have any losses. You don't have any duct losses. So. It's actually a pretty efficient way to do it. If we did one at our place, I'd put uh, an 8,000 BTU unit in each of the bedrooms, and I would put a probably a 12 or an 18,000 unit in probably the living room, and that would cool like the living room, kitchen, hallway area. So, yeah, you can absolutely do that, and, and, and they will run off of, um, you know, a, a reasonable-sized, um, you know, even an off-grid system, but you don't want to have all those units on at the same time. So that's sure. something, another thing you got to look at is you can't just leave all the thermostats on and because if all of them try to kick on at the same time, you're just your inverter is going to say nope, we can't do it and shut off. Cool the bedroom while you sleep. Cool the living room yeah. while you live. That type of thing. Absolutely, I mean, it, it has a lot to do with where you live too. Like I grew up in Florida, and I don't think I could have even thought about this there, especially back in the '80s. But when, when, I, when I moved to Pennsylvania, my grandparents had this place, and they had one window unit for the house. This is like a four-bedroom house. Mm-hmm. Well, at night in Pennsylvania, even in the summer, you open the windows, turn on a fan, you're pretty comfortable. 
Right. But during the day, you're hot. So the, the door to the upstairs got closed. The kitchen, you opened the windows and you dealt with it. And they hung up a curtain, like, to the doorway that went in the kitchen. And uh, there was, like, a, a parlor and a living room. A parlor is kind of like a sitting room without the TV, you know? Yep. And then the door to my, my grandmother's bedroom got closed. And so it was just those two rooms and that one window unit. And if you were in the house, you were in one of those two rooms unless you were in the kitchen cooking or getting something to eat. Right, yeah. People come over to visit. You sit in there in the parlor. Yep. That area is being cooled. Yeah. So I actually I did some research, Jack, before I came on. Uh, by my count, you've had seven people that live off grid or mostly off grid on your show before me. Okay. I'm not going to name any names, but I'm going to tell you where they live. Okay. Ontario, Canada, <laughs> Colorado, Minnesota from Montana, Massachusetts, Vermont, Washington State, and Wisconsin. Mm. So <laughs> there, there is definitely something to be said for the further south. And, you know, you're four degrees further south uh, than I am. You know, you're closer to the equator than I, than I am in Tennessee. Yeah. There's something to be said for off-grid living works better in cooler climates because you can heat with wood and you have a limited number of, of cooling days in the summer. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think the only way to make it work in the South right for now, and we're going to talk about the future here in a minute, but for now is an earth contact structure. If you can get a, a, a house that mostly keeps itself cool without being cooled, right. then pushing it down a few degrees and making the air move through it's pretty easy to do. Um, the problems with that is I can build an off-grid house, put solar on it, and I can sell it as normal piece of real estate. You start making below-ground houses, even dome houses, all of a sudden it's hard for people to get financing, and you, it's a lot harder to sell that, and I believe in extra strategies. For instance, when we moved here, we found this house. It, the kitchen was probably worth $80,000 in it. Mm -hmm. It was seven acres. It was down in Mansfield instead of up here where there's all this rock and that beautiful black clay soil. And it was $235,000 for the whole place. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, we need to get down there and look at this thing. And my real estate agent goes, it's not going to sell for that. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, it's a dome home. Uh, I don't care. I like dome homes. They survive tornadoes better. I, you know, yeah. let's go. She, you'll never get financing. Right, the banks don't like dome homes because there's no comparables. Yep, there's no. You, well, you, you need another house just like it that's sold to get a value that you can. And it's it's stupid because it doesn't matter that it's a circle. You could say this is a three thousand eight hundred square foot home, and it would compare to a square house, but they won't do it. Right. It's, well, we ran into the same thing with our property because it wasn't attached to the grid. You know, uh, we. We actually, the only people that we could find, and we probably could have kept looking, but, but once we found someone, we stopped looking. But it was the local bank where we could walk in and talk to the decision maker. And we sat down and said, here's what we want to do. Here's the appraised value. None of the big banks will touch it. And the guy was like, oh, yeah, actually, we have the mortgage on, we got the mortgage on the construction loan that they took out to build the place. You know, that's blah, 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 blah. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. And he's like, yeah, no problem. Here, fill this out. Ten minutes later, we were approved. You wow. know, but that was because we, you know, that was because it was a local. I mean, this this company has two branches. There's two branches in the county. It's a it's the county bank. You know, so the closer you can get to those actual decision makers, the easier it's going to be for you to to get something like that done. But you got to work. I mean, it's 
it's going to be a second job to find someone that'll talk to you if it, if they can't find comps. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's start a little bit. I was saying, you know, like right now, what do you think the energy future looks like, and the energy storage future looks like? <laughs> well, you know, I can tell you that on the on the panel side, you know, panels are cheap. Uh, I talked to guys who are getting wholesale panels for like thirty eight cents a watt, and and you can actually find them cheaper than that if you look hard enough. Um, and I don't think that's going anywhere, even with the tariffs. Uh, some recent news to come out of China is that the state has stopped subsidizing um, new solar farms. So that's reduced the demand in China for these Chinese-made panels. And so what they're saying is is that oversupply that's going to happen as a result of this, the loss is basically going to, is basically going to um, offset the tariffs. So, so yeah, the tariffs are going to cost, cause the panels to go up and cost a little bit, but the oversupply is going to reduce it. So I don't think we're going to see anything there. Um, other than, you know, it's going to, as we get, as we get more panels on the market, we're going to see lower costs on the battery store on the battery side, man, there are so many different technologies that are working on right now. I mean, lithium ions got about a 25 year head start on everything. So you've got a lot of great ideas that don't have, uh, the ability to get to market right now. Um, you know, so. Uh, one of the interesting ones is a sodium-based battery. It works just like lithium-ion. It is going to be able to use the exact same lithium-ion uh, factories, uh, and it, it's a element that's easier for us to get access to than lithium. Outside yeah, of that, it's just a little bit of sodium around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a few, a few pieces here and there. Um, you know, outside of that, you've got solid-state lithium-ion. Um, there's this interesting gold nanowire battery that they've come up with. You've got zinc air, aluminum air, graphene batteries. Um, you've got some lithium ion batteries that use uh, sand instead of graphite in the anodes. There's dual carbon batteries. Here's my favorite. There is a, and this is actually, it actually works. There is a microbial fuel cell that breaks down urine and makes electricity. Pee in your gas tank, basically. That's right, man. It's <laughs> so, real. They it's actually real. did it. <laughs> They've done it. It's, uh, you know, and it, like the Back to the Future stuff, you can use banana peels and garbage. This stuff breaks down. Um, it uses a reduction oxidation reaction um, to create electricity, so it pulls an electron off, right? And then a microbial electrosynthesis process to actually convert it so that it's usable. And it's, you know, right now it's like, they're, they're like, we can build these and send them to Africa and people can pee in them to charge up their cell phones. Like that's where they are with, with the technology right now. But the, the, what I'm trying to say is, is that there's so much out there. There's so much that these guys are working on. You know, lithium ion is going to be the standard. Well, you know, realistically for, for home scale systems, leaded flood acid is still the standard. Um, but lithium is going to slowly supplant that, and it might be another decade before we see the next big leap. But that being said, that doesn't mean they can't take the existing technologies to make them better and better and better. Uh, or even if they're not better, they just become cheaper because of economies of scale. Well, and cheaper is a big thing. And I think that, like, so there are a lot of things in this world that you can sell a little bit more of it if you make it a little bit cheaper or a lot cheaper, right? Right. And But there's a... There, Companies do a price curve analysis, and there's a point at which 
you kind of cross that over and you actually you actually sell less because people think if it's that cheap, I don't want it. Or right. you so serve the market that you, you, you've, you've gone past the, the demand curve and that right. there's just not a demand for it anymore. There's, well, you, there's decades right. and decades. If you made solar panels cost a quarter a panel for a 250-watt panel, you could sell them for decades and decades before you would hit that point where everybody's got enough. Like, right. you, so there is an incentive to drive down the price for everybody involved in the equation in the world of energy production that doesn't really exist anywhere else, not even food. Because right. you can push food so low, and there's still a point where, like, well, pretty much people buy as much food as they want already. Yeah. Right? Well, pretty, pretty yeah, much people cheap. buy as much power as they want already, but if you can make it cost less, uh, yeah, I'll do that. Because right. I am going to buy that anyway. And well, unlike you, food where you're going to go from, well, I'm just going to go buy more bananas, you're going to say you're going to stop banana, buying bananas and start buying oranges type of thing. Right. Right. Well, I'll tell you an interesting thing with the with the storage, right? So that's the big thing now is everyone's saying, well, as soon as we can get storage right, as soon as we can get storage down to X cost per megawatt hour, um, you know, that's going to make solar and wind that much more viable. And that is true to a point. But but the, the way that these storage systems are going to work is they're going to work off of retail arbitrage, right? So they're going to buy when it's cheap for them to buy, and they're going to store that cheap energy in the batteries and then they're going to sell when it's more expensive right during peak times well what is the battery itself going to do if you do that it's going to increase the base load and it's going to re reduce the peak so the more battery storage you put on the grid if you're using it to make money in that way you're actually going to increase the cost and reduce the sell price the more that goes onto the market well so, you can saturate that too like where you get to the point where the power company's like we don't need it back Right. We don't yeah. need it back. So it's not even that the price is there. It's just we, we, we don't have a place to put it. We're, we're at capacity. We're not buying any right now. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly. And so I think home-scale storage is really where it's going to be. I think home-scale storage makes a lot more sense than utility-scale storage. Unless, you know, utility-scale storage being used to eliminate peaking plants, which are the most expensive methods of producing electricity because you have to keep them ready to go for the whole year and they only may, may only run for a couple of hours every year. Yeah. Um, so getting rid of those, I, I see storage doing that. And then I can see, um, and this is happening right now where places are saying, well, we've got this massive um, transmission and distribution investment we need to make. And it's cheaper for us to store energy than to upgrade what's there currently. So, You know, us, there's going to be some decision making. And, and my thought is, let's do as much of that as we can, because that's going to increase the demand. There's going to be more people that are going to try to get that piece of that market. And in doing so, is going to make it cheaper for us to put it in at home scale. Well, what do you think about this concept? Like, I just covered this thing that this power company in Vermont did, where they were people letting people get a power wall for mm -hmm. very, very cheap. It was something like, if you leased it, it was something like $11 a month. Mm -hmm. And they just come put a power wall in your house, tie it in the grid. And the reason I said the power companies would, you know, work with Tesla and do a deal like that is they put in 2,000 of those. Well, they just created storage for themselves, mm -hmm. but they did it at the customer premise with the customer's money. 
Yep. So I, I think you might see, like, because if the power companies want something, they'll go spend money, and then the government will give it to them. So even in places where they make the power companies buy the power, in the future under this new reality, that whole forced purchase back thing will probably go away. And what the power companies would love to have is all their storage at your house. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it mitigates yeah. the risk, and it also, like, if mine blows up, yours down the street still works. Where if theirs blows up, well, they got a problem. No one's works. Right. Yep. <laughs> no one's works. Well, so I read a story the other week, Jack, uh, and it was actually written by a guy in Austin, Texas, who's a who does a bunch of research on this type of thing. He said that they could go in and, you know, those Nest thermostats that you can, like, control from anywhere? Yeah. They could put one of those in every single household in the state of Texas, and it would cost them $2 billion to do that, okay. to install a Nest thermostat in every single household. But if in return for that, during certain portions of the day, they could go in and turn your thermostat up, like, for example, while you're at work, and then turn it back down 45 minutes to an hour before you get home so that by the time you get home, you don't even know. Yeah. They would save $15 billion dollars. And, or they would eliminate $15 billion in new plants that needed to be built, not to mention the multiple billions of dollars they would save by not having to upgrade uh, and maintain their distribution and transmission uh, facilities. So, again, $2 billion investment. Hey, Texas, we're going to come in, and we're going to put this thing in in all your houses, and it's going to save all your money, and you don't have to do anything except for save money. Uh, you know, Unlock the door when we get there, lock it when we close, save money after that. Like that's your investment is unlocking and locking the door when they leave. I think the that's only resistance to that would be people like me, right? I work for well, my home office. Thing. You're not turning my shit. Down. Well, that's the great thing about the Nest is you just turn the Bluetooth off, right? Uh. So you you say, well, you're not going to change. Yeah, come on in, please. I've got three thermostats or whatever. Go ahead yeah. and change them all out. Yeah. You know, I no problem. But I'm going to turn it off. You're not going to. You know, I'm not, and that's the thing. I'm not. I don't have to sign the agreement, right? Yeah. If they're going to do this and they're going to invest the money, I can benefit from it without having, uh, you know, without benefiting them on the back end. But a two billion dollar investment saves them fifteen billion right away, and then how many billions, you know, down the road in deferred infrastructure increases? Well, and I think that like so that's why you'll see more and more of the power companies getting involved with getting the storage as well as things like the, the smart meters and control out to the customer premise. Because yep. it's honestly a dream, right? Even if you have to say, yes, you're leasing it. Yes, if it breaks, we will maintain it. Yes, if it needs a new part, we'll come put it on. You have a total different maintenance plan, and the guy you need to maintain to do the maintenance work is the guy you can train in two months. Right. You can take a guy out of high school and say, let me show you how you do this without killing yourself, and let me show you how you do this without pissing off the customer. Right. And in two months, that guy can be in a truck driving around like a dish satellite guy and putting new systems in and, and you know, servicing old ones, replacing batteries, stuff like that. Where Absolutely. When you have a guy running or you know, a crew that is responsible for maintaining the storage facility for a peak generation plant, you're talking mm -hmm. highly specialized, high-end people that have to do that job. Well, you look at the, at the other side too. So look, you look at like brownouts or blackouts caused by failure of the of the of the distribution system. So I don't, we don't know what caused your power outage yesterday, but let's just say it was an old transformer that blew out. Yeah. Okay. 
everyone. I think it was an Oldsmobile. Getting... I think it was an Oldsmobile that blew out a transformer, <laughs> but right. But <laughs> let's say let's say it was a let's say it was an old one, right? It was yeah. it was one that needed to be replaced. They couldn't get the crew out there because that's a very specialized job to sure. change one of those out. Okay. Now every single person that didn't have power while they had to get that work done wasn't buying power from them, right? So how much revenue did they just lose over 24 hours from every person that was tied to where, you know, the areas where they couldn't shut off all those people that lost power. Same thing with um, like in the, the Vermont situation you were talking about. Thunderstorm comes through, you know, knocks down trees left and right. Uh, it's the remnants of a hurricane that hits uh, uh, North Carolina. So all the linesmen are down in North Carolina, but now in Vermont they've lost power. Well, guess what? I've got a power wall. I can run for the next three days off a power wall, and I bought all the electricity that's in there. And if they can get it back on in three days, they lose nothing. Well, and so then the other side of that to me has been, like, if, th if that starts to become more of a thing, And if that power wall is installed, that storage-to-grid component that you talked about earlier, making it more difficult for me to do my own solar, is done. Right. Right? So th there's the storage facility. If I'm going to have solar on my house, it makes 100% sense for it to go there. Yep. Now I'm on the opposite side of it. I'm on the, I'm on the side where I can't kill a lineman by doing something wrong. Right. Which is a bit, you know, people get all uh, in a wad about this, but there's a, like, there's a lot of government regulation that's just crap. There's a reason for this, because if you don't yeah. know what you're doing, power's out, and that guy's coming to try to help your neighbor, you kill him, right? right. So th th that's why that exists. But that's now a done deal. So now, putting solar on, now I've got storage and solar's cheap. Solar, you know, solar's going down to like 38 bucks to a 100 watt panel. Something like mm -hmm. that, right? When you when you buy it in, in quantity, um, even if I need some help, a guy getting up on his roof, throwing some brackets on there, mounting the panels, and then just having a qualified electrician do the tie-in, that all starts to make more sense too. Absolutely, absolutely. Once you've got that localized storage, and now what you do is is you run the pan panel through the power wall, and we're just using that term because that's the one that everyone. Uses. There's a lot of other companies that are coming up with competing technologies. But, yeah, you run it through the power wall and then to your panel, right? Yeah. And so now when that switch cuts off, when the power goes out and you're not putting electricity on the grid, it doesn't even affect the power wall going over to the sub-panel. At all. Except At all. That, except there's still some power coming into it. Which, right. Because I, I, what I said when I first covered this is if I got a letter that said, Dear Encore Customer, You have been selected for a new trial program in the state of Texas. You can get a Tesla Powerwall for $12 a month. I'd call them and say, I'll take three. Yep. I'll take three. Can I get four? Because <laughs> I'm, right, I'm taking three. I want to know. I'm not sure if I can find a place to put the fourth one, but for $12 a month, I'll build you a spot to put right. the fourth one. Because then yesterday, right, except for when the, 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 uh, the Internet guys ran out of power, like, It wouldn't have affected me at all. I wouldn't even yeah. know. Like you wouldn't have even You actually known. need yeah. an alarm that tells you. Like you need something to tell you your power's not coming in anymore. Right. Because nothing happens. Like maybe they go flicker, flicker, and that's it. Your UPS kicks over for half a second on right. your computer, but that's it. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think that kind of is our future. Uh, on this, like, so I'm sure you've seen the uh, the clean disruption presentation by Tony Seba. Yeah. Almost everybody I've had on that 
is kind of in your world, kind of agrees with me. I'm interested to see what you think on this. That the guy's exactly right, but his timeline is maybe a little over optimistic. Yeah, I agree with that. The only thing that would change that would be um, government funding, right? So okay. you look at what what Texas has done. Um, you know the the bill that said, "Hey, we're going to add this much renewable energy by this date." was signed by President Bush, and or I'm sorry, Governor Bush in 99, yeah. right? And then Governor Perry is the one that oversaw the infrastructure investments that allowed all of these transmission lines to run out to West Texas where all these fields of, of uh, wind, gener- wind generators are. Well, the cool thing about that is this 30% federal tax rebate um, helped pay for a lot of that, right? And then that's for wind, that's going away after next year. But the solar one goes on for the next couple of years. So what are you seeing in Texas right now? Well, next year, Texas is going to triple the amount of solar that they're going to put in at a utility scale because the money, the investment money is going away from wind because they're not getting those federal dollars and it's going over to solar. And am I a big fan of, you know, my tax dollars being taken away from me and, and, and distributed willy nilly uh, to different industries? No, but I don't, also don't think that just because I don't like it, it's not going to happen. So. Yeah. What I what I think is, is, you know, right now we've got this, you know, these uh, campaign promises of coal's coming back. Well, coal's never coming back now. The infrastructure to burn it to create electricity is dead or dilapidated. It's not coming back. So if we if we could switch that, like if the next bout of campaign promises could be, well, we're going to take all that money that we were putting in in other stuff and we're just going to invest in research and development. And then if these. Uh, p- public companies can take that research and turn it into a profitable industry, they're more than welcome to go do so. I think if we did that, that would speed it up. But I think we're probably still 10 years out before we see the type of things that were being talked about in that presentation. You know, I think on the on the government money thing, I, I, I loathe the government. I despise the government. You and I are the same vein there. But I also accept that they exist. Right? right. There's a lot of things I don't like. But I accept that it exists and that I am not able to make it go away. Uh, but what this makes me think about hearing you, you talk right there about this and redirecting some of that spending is back when they did the bailout. I know that's I think that's pre-listening to TSP for you. But when they did the yeah. big uh, bailout, the 2008-2009 Bush handoff to Obama, I don't even remember how much it was, but it was some ridiculous amount of the stimulus. The, that's what I'm thinking of, the stimulus. I actually figured out at that time. And it was hard to actually get the information. There were this is about a hundred and ten million owner-occupied structures in the United States, and the amount of money they spent, they could have put a four kilowatt solar system on the roof of every single owner-occupied structure in the United States of America with that money. <laughs> Instead of building turtle tunnels and a guardrail around a dam that didn't exist and all the other, like, there's not really a lot. That we can look at now and say, because we did the stimulus, we have this thing. Like, right. you, I, I, I'm sure you've, you've traveled the country like I have. You go to places and you're like at this really cool park and there's like these stone steps built into it, and you see like Civilian Conservation Corps built it. Yep. And you're like, well, yeah, I don't like it, but at least see, we ha- this thing is here. This was built yep. in 1934, and it's here, and people are using it today. And so we could have made a huge leap because that was in. Two thousand nine dollars, like solar's right. stupid cheap compared to two thousand nine now. Oh yeah, it's stupid cheap compared to two thousand twelve when I put mine in. I when I paid for my panels, <laughs> I would not, 
I would not, I would, I would, if someone called me and said, I got this great deal for you, we're going to charge you a dollar and 12 cents a watt, I'd hang up right then. You're <laughs> out of your mind. I, I loved that deal in 2012. And now I'm like, man, I could do twice that. But the beauty of this, and I think it's something people need to consider, is you can now expand your system per watt for less than installing one. Right. Right. So you yeah. could just add more panels and you can just add more storage. A lot of the pieces to your system are kind of once and done until at least they break. Yeah, the charge controller and the inverter still have tons of uh, capacity in my system. So, yeah, I could absolutely uh, I could double the amount of solar panels. What, what is the size of your be... system? What, how, what, what is your production? You know, what is it? What is it from a standpoint of like the sticker that they would tell you it is? And then what yeah, is it so... from a practical nature of what does it make? So what we, we average about over the course of a year, we average about, oh, hold on, let me do the math. I'm gonna, I'm not even gonna tell you the average. I'm gonna give you the actual. <laughs> This is why we bring engineers on, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we generate about 700 kilowatt hours of electricity a year. And that's on a, nameplate of 2,475 watts. Okay. So you're generating so, about 1.9K a day. Yeah, on average. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's much higher than that in the summer and much lower than that in the winter. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's a nameplate capacity of 2,475. And, you know, when the sun's out and, and uh, in the middle of summer and we've got the right angle of incidence, You know, we're probably generating somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 2,200 uh, watts at any one time. So you're like a 2.4K system. So just to drive that home, that stimulus could have put something about like what you have on the roof of your house, mm -hmm. on the roof of every house in America. Right. Every single one of them. I mean, I did the math. I used Excel to make sure I didn't screw it up, right? Like, <laughs> like so it, when I look at that and I go, like, if there is a place – That government could spend money that would make me less angry. I was going to say happy, and I just couldn't do it. Uh, it would be in this 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 realm. I mean, like you know, I as an anarchist, I get the whole Marauds argument all the time. But I'm the first one to admit, like as things go, kind of one of the most benign things the state does is build roads. I'm I'm kind of okay right. with that. If we were building power, um, because then everything runs off of power. Right, like your entire economy runs. Part of why the economy is booming right now is energy's cheap. Right, it's huge. It's not great for the people making the energy, but for everybody else, mm -hmm. you know. There's uh, there's one of one of our mutual friends, uh, David, is working on a, a a deal right now that they're going to be doing some uh, major uh, installation work for. But it's this huge plastics factory, and basically they're they're building it where they're building it because it's basically abandoned gas wells right there that they're going to tie into. And they're getting their power to run this huge multi-billion-dollar plant for free. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, right now they're capping uh, oil shale wells in West Texas because there's no pipeline capacity to get rid of the uh, associative gas that's coming off, and and their uh, flaring permit has run out, so they can't flare it. There's no pipeline to put it in, and so literally, like, what? Shut the shut the well down. There's Just shut it do. down until there's a place to send it. So yeah. I think, like, do you feel that that could hold back solar, wind, et cetera, though? Like, the fact that there is all this cheap fossil fuel. Well, uh, hold back, not necessarily, right? So um, I believe that we're not going to see the end of natural gas as our primary 
um, energy generation fuel for probably the next 25 to 30 years. Um, that being said, when I look at it and I I look at the Waha hub selling it for 82 cents, uh, a million cubic foot, that's not going to keep that. That price isn't going to hold because once those pipelines in Mexico are connected, once that pipeline going down to Corpus Christi as gets connected and gets connected to those LNG export facilities, they can sell it and send it overseas for cheaper than they can burn it for, for uh, electricity here. I'm sorry, for more, they can sell it more than they can burn it for electricity here. So I think that while the capacity and the, the, you know, the, the amount of natural gas that we will have available to burn is massive, you know, they're going to say, well, why, why would we sell it to a power plant for 250 when we can export it for three, right? Sure. And, so, and, and that's why these billion, multiple billion dollar export and pipeline uh, projects are happening right now is because as soon as they can get it into a truck, into a, uh, a sphere on a, on a tanker and send it to China, they're going to. That, so so I don't, I'm not going to say it's going to hold it back because – uh, I think what's going to happen is, is the more renewable energy we see on the grid, the less coal we're going to see. Okay, and that's not because I am concerned about polar bears. It's just the reality of what it costs to produce over the lifetime of the asset compared to a 40-year-old um, coal plant that's probably losing 30 million dollars a year because it's falling apart. I know we're talking about solar today, but as an engineer that knows this stuff. I'd like you to speak to something. I see this meme that goes around on Facebook about once every three weeks. It just makes me want to hang somebody. Um, it has a picture of a windmill, and it says, you know, a windmill will never recoup the energy used to create it. Well, You want to yeah, give us the so, reality of that? So the reality is there's two realities. The first one is the real number is about three years, and the second one is even if it wasn't, who cares? Okay, <laughs> If I can buy it and put it in and it saves me money – who cares? Okay. I mean, if I put enough of them in, then I can use wind power to make more wind power. Right. Yeah. But I don't go out and buy a car and say, you know what? That one gets 30 miles to the gallon. That one gets 60, but I'm never going to make back those extra 30 miles uh, for every gallon of gas of energy save of carbon emissions because of all the steel and fabric and carpet and plastic that's in that thing. Does anyone ever say that? No. So, we got this new technology and everyone says, hey, you know what? Let's write a new rule book that that technology has to, to follow in order to be, you know, viable. Well, why would we do that? We have a rule book, you know? I mean, this technology is coming online and it's it's disadvantaged to everything that's already been here for the past 60 years and it's still cheaper. So if it, even if you're, if you, even if your premise of we'll never regain the carbon emissions that it took, who cares? We're not going to do it if we keep burning coal. We're not going to gain anything back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just every time I see that, it irks me. And I'll I'll post an article that debunks it, and I'll get well, they're leftists, and I'm like, I I, I didn't know that the facts about energy were political. Right. right. I knew that the opinions were, but I didn't know that the facts were. Well, you know, and that's that's another thing. Everyone says, you know, and I'm an a, I'm a statheist, right? I'm an apolitical person. I don't really yeah. care. I care about what's right, not about who says it. And and so you, we've got this idea in the country that only the liberals care about clean energy. But you look at the state that's kicking literally everyone else's butt when it comes to renewable energy, and the two guys that made it happen were Bush and Perry. That's true. It's true because, and you know why? 
because in spite of whatever they might be motivated for as far as being grafted and bribed, um, because it works here. Because we have right. great big empty planes. We have a very limited amount of regulations that, that don't prevent us from you know burying a cable in the ground, as though that's mm -hmm. a horror to do. Uh, so we can put up these giant things that spin around in the middle of nowhere where no one goes, that no one cares about, other than they tie into this wire and bring us power. And right. that's why we're the leader in wind energy here, because it works. Yeah, if it was more expensive, it wouldn't have worked. No. It just absolutely wouldn't have worked. And we're the state that's producing more oil and gas than anybody else, too. We're still producing more wind. You're also burning more coal. You're burning double the coal of number two. Really? That's how much energy and demand there is in Texas is you're, you're, you're utilizing double the coal of number two and I think four times the wind of number two. Yeah. You come here in August, I'll show you why. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, there's that, and then there is, is that because the cold season is short duration here, very few people uh, heat with gas uh, mm -hmm. or wood. But it does get significantly cold, and then all of these big giant houses are, are blowing heat for, right. for you know that one day a year or whatever it is. It's really well, more like when you add it up. It'll be like six weeks spread out over four months. People right. are really kicking it hard with the heat. But then the other thing is because we have a lot of space and because, you know, I don't know if you've looked at what you can buy in a new house for $250,000 here, but it's, it's nuts on the size of the homes. Right. So it's also, it's not just the heat. It's also the size of the average home. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not even building homes under 2000 square feet down here anymore. There's, yeah, it's illegal in a lot of places. It is. And the county offices did that because the housing starts went to nothing during the 08, 09 recession. So they weren't building new houses. So they had to get some way to increase their tax base. So what they did is say, well, anybody's building a house is doing a custom build. So right. we'll say they have to be 2,400 square feet. That'll increase what we can say it's worth. So the new houses that we do get, we can tax higher. And now like people like my kid, they're paying $170,000, $180,000 for a three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,500-square-foot house because that's the entry-level house. And there's wow. only so many of them available. But they could... If they made a little bit more money, go buy a 2,500 square foot house, all brand new in a brand new development for 210. Right. Yeah. If you can afford the little bit of extra payment, you get a lot more house. Yeah. Of, you know, over the payment uh, percentage increase. So let's talk a little bit because I know you're using uh, solar thermal too, and we've kind of stuck to photovoltaics. What's the solar thermal technologies that are available to the common guy? Well, you know, I think um, really. Solar air and solar water heating are the two primary ones. And, and so, you know, my assumption is that most people's houses are fixed, right? They can't just pick them up and rotate them to get better, better solar exposure. Uh, but what they could do is, is build small, uh, solar air collectors, right? And, and put those in their windows to help heat during the year. And where I am in North, it works a lot better. You know, like you just said, you've only really got six weeks where you're heating there. Um, but I, but I would imagine if you had a uh, house with the right exposure that you could put some of these solar thermal and essentially all these collectors are is a black, a box painted black on the inside and covered with glazing so that the heat doesn't escape. Now inside of that box, you can do things like the pop cans, which everyone's seen aluminum down spouts, uh, the free screen method. You can look up all kinds of YouTube videos on that. That's the most cost effective 
and you get the most bang for your buck. So it costs like 8% more to do that than just a black box, but you get 67 more, 67% more heat out of it. And so you take those things and you just duck them into a window and put a little computer fan or something in front of there. And now you're getting free heated air, not free at first, but within a short period of time, it's going to pay for itself. Um, you're getting heated air into the house. And, and when it gets cold in the evenings, you just shut the window, right? You don't have to worry about the air going out the other direction. On solar thermal, even something as simple as like a, a, a solar uh, or water heating panel that you run in between wherever your water's coming into your house, whether it's a well or a pressure tank or, or city water, run it into that um, solar thermal water heater to preheat it before it goes into your electric or your um, your gas, you know, propane uh, water heater, just a little bit of heat increases that much less electricity or energy that you need to heat that water. And so those are things that are easy to build, easy to put in. If you put in a couple uh, T's with ball valves, you can open them up, you know, through most of the year. And if you live in an area where it might uh, freeze overnight, you just shut those T's, take the system off, drain it for the for that cold part of the year, and then throw it back up there. Uh, those are very easy to do. There's tons of videos all over YouTube on how to do them. And even if you live in a neighborhood where, you know, people aren't going to like the look of it, there are some that you, there are some that you can do that look just fine. They look like they're supposed to be there, that they're part of the house. Uh, there's a guy up in Maryland right now that's getting like all of his hot water and about 80% of his annual heating bill knocked out by running a system that from the street you can't even tell. It just looks like black trim on the bottom of his house. Very cool. And I mean, I mean, like part of what the water is, like my water comes out of my well, you know, even here, it's so deep. It's coming out of my well at about 68 degrees, right? right. So if that water is heated from 68 degrees to, let's say, 108 degrees, which is not hard to do here at all, right. and my water heater set at like, uh, 128 degrees. I'm only now bringing the water up by 20 degrees. Yep. And that is that is a huge savings because it's it's hard to move a, a large volume of water. Like let's say a 50 gallon or 75 gallon hot water tank. It's a lot of water to move up to 130 degrees or something like that. If you want really right. hot water and keep it there even when you're not using it. Yeah. So um, one of the ideas you had, you know, I saw the last work, workshop at Nicole's you were at. Uh, was doing a thermal solar thermal hot water heater uh, and tying it into something like an aquaponics system so it doesn't freeze up. Absolutely. The only thing i got to figure out is how to make that thing completely automated so that it stops sending water up there at night and doesn't break the pipes that it's connected to. Uh, otherwise, you got to go out there and manually do that crap every day because... When you said that, like a light bulb went off for me because I'm thinking, okay, I've got a system with about 600 gallons of water in it, and if I'm putting, you know, 100 gallons of, or even 50 gallons of water up into a heater, and that water's coming up to 80 degrees and being dropped back in there, and that happens all day long a few times, there's no way that water's going back down to freezing overnight. It's not right. happening, and then it can start again in the morning. But I got to come up with some kind of way to basically. Like, okay, the water's going to go up there to a certain point, and then it's going to stop going up there, and everything's going to drain. And do that. Well, here's an idea. Okay. Um, run that circulation off of a separate pump that's, okay. so, that's powered, that's directly powered 
Uh, it's a, it'd be a DC pump directly powered by a small solar panel. And so now it only comes on when there's enough sunlight to, run to turn that pump. And as soon as there's not enough, a.k.a. the sun isn't heating water for you anymore, yeah. it stops pumping. That's great. That's great, except the drainage part. We got to put a drain in there too. Well, I mean, I don't. I would. I would doubt in your area that if you've got uh, pipes and, and water that is getting up to temperature, um, that it wouldn't. Um, that it would freeze overnight. But if, even if it did, let's say you you had a cold snap. You still wanted to do this. You had a cold snap. I bet there's some, and maybe Siegler could help with this. Yeah. I bet there would be some sort of siphon action that we could do where when the pump kicks off, the water drains out, and then maybe when it kicks back on the next day, it takes a little time to get the to get the system filled up. But it seems like you should be able to do it with, a, with a simple solenoid that just basically, when there's no pressure, the solenoid opens and gravity does the work and it all drops back down into my greenhouse. Absolutely. Like once yep. you do that, I, I, that that makes sense to me now. As soon as you said the DC powered pump, because I don't need a lot of capacity. In fact, I want very little capacity. Right. That way, you're getting more thermal gain as the, as the water slowly moves through the heater. Yeah, I was I was thinking about it differently. See, I was thinking you send it up there until it's full, and then there's like a solenoid that holds it in there, and uh, then it comes up to a certain temperature. And when it hits that certain temperature, that solenoid opens and it drains back down. Right, and then it closes and refills, so that has time up there. But you're right; you build a system like that, and you put it through at a very slow speed. Yeah, that then you've you've got that. <clears throat> you can design that so that the pump itself held the water in. Yep. And that when the pump shut off, it basically just dumped back down through it. Right. You got me. As long as, and and so I I tell you what, I built one that was like two by two, right? The first one I ever built, and that thing. It was a very low flow. You know, it would be like a trickle coming out of the end of a of a garden hose. But that thing was raising the temperature. Ours comes out at about 55 degrees. Yeah. And it was raising it up to 105 degrees on a trickle, right? So a little bit more of a of a flow, and it would be it wouldn't be raising it as much. But you know, you, if you're constantly raising a trickle of water up to, and you could even measure, okay, how many, you know, how much per minute or How much for every 15 minutes am I getting? And then I've got X amount of water in the bottom of this. So how how many times is that whole water thing getting turned over every day? Yeah, uh, yeah I would say that without a whole lot of effort, you could definitely put that system in your place. Yeah, you'd actually have to put a safeguard against it from overwarming it on a really nice right. winter day. You know, I mean, we could if you're putting water in there at 100 degrees, you could overwarm it. That's what yeah. I learned. I learned just from I plumbed in a float valve to one of my systems, so I would have not have to worry about refilling it, and the water temperature kept climbing and Just the little piece of hose, you know, because that 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 float valve was only kicking on for a couple seconds at a time. Oh, so you're like superheating the water I'm in the superheating hose. Superheating the water, so it's like okay, you gotta if you're gonna plumb a float valve and you gotta bury pipe, and you gotta right. hide the leader hose or put insulation around it on the little last piece of it, to, so that it's not getting heated up, so that you're getting groundwater temperature instead of because like you know a hose here, they're very sad story. A lady playing with her kid, sprayed her kid with a hose, right, which turned oh, on. And man. he ended up with, like, secondary burns in the ER. Yeah, it's not hard. It's Yeah, it's it, it, it gets heat, heated up. What would you tell the average person, um, they just want to sort of stick their foot into solar, where, where to start? 
Well, you know, I think if you've got a system like what we were just talking about, you know, and you said, okay, I've got this, uh, I've got this system that's kind of separate from the house. It's an aquaponic system. Uh, and, and I want to, uh, keep that, um, you know, warm through the winter. Like that would be an easy way to get into it. Uh, you know, building a, a cold frame, you know, that, that's, that's utilizing solar energy, right? Uh, that's an easy way to get into it. When I talked before about the, uh, a small solar thermal air collector or water heater, you know, those are again, you know, the whole, the, the, the water, a four by eight water heater with copper pipe in there, which is about the most expensive solar, uh, panel that you can build is probably going to cost you about 400 bucks. And that's not a small investment. I, I'm under no illusion that that's not a little bit of money, but literally you'll save that much in, in uh, water heating, whether you're on propane or electric within a couple of seasons. You know, um, the, there, there's so many uh, the, the little small projects. You could build a solar uh, water distiller. You know, you could build a solar dehydrator. That's a little bit more involved but it's not e- it's not hard to do. Um, there are really a lot of ways that you could say, what are we doing? What are we uh, utilizing uh, electricity for that we might be able to do something very simple as a family project that we build together, and at the end of it, we got something that's going to last for five, ten years and and save us money. So um, I think that the smaller, the better when you get started. I mean, our the first solar installation we did. Well, you know, it was a 2,475 watt uh, solar PV installation. Um, I probably would have started smaller, <laughs> you know. Except you uh, needed just, it. <laughs> yeah, I had to have it. It just happened. It, it happened out that way. So, Very cool, man. So um, I guess what I would add is, like, the first time I ever built a battery bank, I went, well, turning this into solar is nothing. It's a charge right. controller and a panel. Yep. And then, then I, it snapped at me, and I went, wait a minute. I could now take this exact knowledge that I gained doing this, and if I had a little cabin somewhere and I wanted to put it in a few hundred watt system, you know, like you said, as a hunting cabin or something like that, so there was some power there, mm-hmm. I, I could I could build a off grid solar system. I could size it to a whole house, right? From the knowledge gained from putting a panel and a charge controller onto a battery bank. Now you 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 get more able to kill yourself and to burn things down, and you might want to have somebody sanity check it. But the the actual mechanics of doing it are the same. Yeah, really all that's changing is things like wire size and, and the, like, are we going to step the voltage up so we can use a smaller gauge wire the bigger we go? But you're exactly right. The components, while there might be more or slightly larger components, they're all still the same components. Absolutely, man. Well, dude, uh, you want to tell people about your website? Yeah, so uh, hackmyseller.com. It sounds just – or it's spelled just the way it sounds – um, you know, I've got some podcasts up there. Uh, it's, it's, it's still a side hustle. Um, really my main thing that I'm enjoying doing there is sharing some knowledge. I've got a bunch of people that have been writing questions into me. And so, you know, being able to help those out, I've really enjoyed answering the questions on the, uh, on the expert panel. So if you've got any more of those about, you know, living off the grid or designing these types of, and I call it, I, I'm going to use the term appropriate technologies. But that being said, sometimes the appropriate technology is a generator and a can of gas, right? Yep. Um, so, you know, questions about that, remote properties and things like that, I'm definitely interested in continuing to to answer those questions. But, yeah, you guys, uh, if you need some help designing something, uh, I do both on-grid and, and or on-site and off-site designs. And uh, there's a form that you can fill out right there at the Hack My Solar website to, uh, to fill that out. 
Well, very cool, Sean. I appreciate you taking uh, your afternoon to be with us, especially since you uh, took your afternoon to be with us yesterday, and I was <laughs> able to make it happen for you, man. Well, hey, Jack, again, thanks for having me on, man. I've, I've been part of the community for, uh, I guess, about six, seven years now, so it's, it's great to be able to share some of the stuff I've learned. I'm pretty sure you were at the first ever workshop we ever did. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you married uh, oh. Jake Robinson and I to make a point to Jake about <laughs> how the state should not be involved in marriage. I totally forgot about that. That was great. <laughs> yeah. See, folks, I've been telling you, you guys want to come to one of these things. We got the, the, the stuff going on sale on Saturday. You're not going to be able to make it this time around. You got a, a major uh, life thing going on, right? But, yep, uh, yep. I, I bet you'd say that getting to one of these is probably totally worth it. Yeah, the only thing the only thing that I would suggest over going to one of Jack's workshops is going to two or more of them. <laughs> cool, man. I appreciate the kind words. And again, thanks for being with us today, Sean. All right, thanks, Jack. See ya. Great interview with Sean. Good dude. Really glad to have him as part of this community for so many years and glad to have him now as a member of the expert council. Looking back on it, something I should have probably asked him about doing a long time ago. Fantastic interview. I learned a lot. It was enjoyable. Hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, with that wrapped up, I want to remind you guys you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do in a couple ways. One of those ways is by becoming a member of the MSB. Like I said, we got this workshop coming up. You, you can't even really get into it without being an MSB member. One of the perks. There's a lot of perks. Like, how about getting all your money back? How about supporting a show, using the discounts that are part of the program, making a profit, and it not costing you anything, in fact, and putting money back in your pocket. That's what MSB is. You want to learn more, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. The other thing you can do is really simple, painless. Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You're going to buy something online, go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com. First, you can see all my reviews categorically uh, set out alphabetically so you can see all the stuff we've done. Uh, you can see the item of the day. You can get over and see the deals of the day on Amazon. You can do all that stuff. As long as you shop through tspaz, you're supporting us no matter what you eventually buy. Uh, here's what I got for you reviewed today. I have the STX 3000 Turbo Force Meat Grinder. Yes, the Turbo Force Meat Grinder. Um, this came from a lot of research. Last year, I knew I needed a new grinder. The other one went to Grinder Heaven. And also, as we were coming up toward the hunting season, I got a bunch of grinder questions. I guess a lot of people were here. They're getting their first grinder or a lot of grinders went off to Grinder Heaven. And Grinder Heaven got a lot of new grinders in, in, in the door that year, or through the gates, I guess, right? And so I started looking at them, and they kind of broke down into two things. One that was adequate but cheap, and really might go to Grinder Heaven again pretty soon, or just didn't really have the ass behind it to get the job done well. Uh, and then things like the Cabela's Carnivore, which are on the edge of like a commercial-grade grinder, and they're really fantastic, but they're like... 600 bucks. You might have to like sell a piece of your liver to buy one or something. And in all of it, I found this, this, this STX 3000 and the reviews on it were fantastic. And for 130 bucks, it just seemed too good to be true. But the more research I did, the more true it seemed to be. And I got one. This thing is a hoss, man. It, if you follow the rules for your grinder that I give you, which are as follows, put the screw, the blade and the plate in the freezer. Okay, with the meat, leave the meat in there till it's almost frozen, where you can move it a little bit with your fingers, but it's hard, and grind it. It'll grind meat that's not you don't do that with. Just meat comes out so much better if you do this. 
I went through 20 pounds of deer meat, this thing, and never even breathed hard. And I think it took me less than 10 minutes to grind 20 pounds of deer meat. It was grinding faster than I could get the meat into the grinder. Um, I've, I've ground up beef and pork and all kinds of stuff. with It's just a fantastic grinder. You can see my uh, review of it uh, at tspaz.com. Just click for the most current reviews. And remember, as long as you stop through, shop through T-Spaz, you help support us no matter what you buy. Uh, on this one, it's the values through the roof. The cutting blades, it comes with three cutting blades. Grinders are of a certain size. This is a number 12, which is a fairly large grinder. They use standard blades. Like 20 different manufacturers, they'll all use the same blade. That's a good thing. But those blades are usually 15 to 20 bucks a piece. And every grinder I've ever owned or ever seen somebody buy comes with one blade. This comes with three. So consider those extra two blades being $40 worth of free extra parts in a $129 grinder. And I have used a one-horsepower Cabela's Carnivore that my buddy Kevin up in West Virginia has. It's about the best you know, consumer-grade grinder you can get. Is this thing as good? No, but it's very, very, very close for $470 less. So check it out, the STX 3000 Turbo Force. And you can always support us how? Shopping online at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. This is uh, riding the storm out as we are in REO Speedwagon Week. And I guess we're going to have to carry over to Monday to get all five of REO Speedwagons out because, uh, well, I you know, had the, the hiccup with power and Internet out yesterday. Uh, but this is a 1973 version of this song, the original released. Kevin Cronin, again, who I've talked about, was the lead singer that everybody knows from REO Speedwagon. If you don't know his name, um, it is just... Yeah, he's got that voice that all of their power ballads and stuff like that, uh, they're just known for. Um, this, in 1973, due to some creative differences, he left REO Speedwagon. He wasn't with them in 71 when they did their first album. He came, started working with them in 70, late 71 through 72 as they were putting this album together. Came to some headbutting with some of the other members of the band and left again. Came back in either 76 or 77. So they released this album without him and... Mike Murphy sings lead vocals in this album, uh, in this song on this album anyway. The other thing with it is this is not an easy thing to find. Um, the version you're about to hear was ripped from vinyl uh, by a YouTube user named Southern Rocker. So uh, this is about as old school as it gets. And, you know, I remember one time watching a documentary on REO Speedwagon with my wife, because my wife, this is her favorite band ever. And um, I remember how some of the people that were like, you know, friends and family of the band were talking about how as they got to hit mega success with a lot of these ballads like Can't Fight This Feeling, the band really didn't, wasn't real happy about it in some ways because they always considered themselves to be like a, a real, you know, kind of hard rock band, something like equivalent to like Kansas or Boston. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, I like REO Speedwagon and all, but the music I was familiar with, I'm like, no, you're not. Well, you can see from the genesis of the roots in this early music we're doing, including this song that when re-released <clears throat> was a lot more with Kevin Cronin in that, that vein. It was, you know, not a complete ballad or anything, but had a lot more of that kind of higher pitch and falsetto and everything. Like back here, you can see in their roots what they were trying to do. Um, It, it was valiant effort, but I think it was really when, uh, when they accepted what people were looking for from them 
And, and Kevin got back in the band. The, the band became the mega success. And I'm sure today, I'm sure today they don't do it. And they're getting them royalty checks. They don't have any problems with it at all, you know. And there's a lesson in life there. Sometimes the path you think you're walking isn't the right one for you. And if you pay attention, the right one might show up. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Yeah.